most important thing for me is that when I'm doing a hotel now, nothing else matters but the product. Nothing. A little bit the way Steve Jobs felt, I suppose. Nothing else matters but the product. And at that point in my life with Steve, nothing else matters but the success. If, if it's successful, the high tide comes in and we all benefit. We all get credit. If it's not, you can have all the credit. And I think that was nothing else mattered but the success. And now it's the product. And uh, that's a good thing to live by. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Ian Schrager is a co-founder of Studio 54, the nightclub he founded with his partner Steve Rubell in the 70s, that to this day, almost 50 years later, is probably considered the most iconic club of all time. He didn't stop there. He also opened the Palladium post-Studio 54, which itself is considered one of the all-time greats. And I can personally attest to some great nights at the Palladium. But nightclubs were just the start for Ian. In 1984, he opened Morgan's Hotel, introducing the boutique hotel to the world. Today, boutique hotels are ubiquitous. But in the 80s, it was an entirely new concept. In fact, Ian shared He remembered seeing Andy Warhol walking by the Morgans and peeking in the window to see what all of this idea was about. Few people, if any, have had the impact on popular culture that Ian Schrager has. He has changed the way we live our lives, entertain ourselves, party, dance, socialize, holiday, work, dine, drink, play, shop, and even how we see the world. He has single-handedly changed industries, These innovations have become standards and you continue to be imitated throughout the world. Today at 75, he is concentrating on his public hotels brand, which focuses on offering the best style service and value. His story is coming up after the break. All founders know the importance of compliance for scaling their businesses. After founding three different businesses, compliance is still my most complex issue that takes way more time than I'd like. However, I recently found a solution to the dilemma of complex compliance processes, Leica. Leica makes the entire compliance process simple. Leica's platform builds and automates compliance for standards like SOC2 and HIPAA with hands-on expertise each step of the way. With Leica, businesses can pass security questionnaires from customers, adapt to newer regulations, and maintain all documents in one place. The platform's automations, workflows, and integrations make passing audits and minimizing risk easier than ever. And you don't have to worry about keeping up with new regulations. Every customer gets a dedicated compliance expert to help understand requirements, implement policies, and fulfill ongoing responsibilities. Leica is also the only compliance platform that offers everything in-house. From the tooling and expertise to the audits and monitoring, Leica is a turnkey experience. How success happened listeners get 20% off when you join. Visit 
heylika.com slash HSH to get their exclusive deal only for HSH listeners. That's lowercase heylika, H-E-Y-L-A-I-K-A dot com slash HSH to request a demo and get 20% off when you sign up with Leica. We're back. I love sitting down with Ian. I've read so much about the venues he has built and the impact they have had on society. Of course, I had to start with the nightclub business. I was feeling a sense of excitement. I knew we had a winner. I could tell from friends and people that were going through it the people who were working there, that everyone is very was very excited about it. They had never seen anything like it before. I didn't know how successful or or whatever, but I but I, I felt comfortable uh, that this was something special we were about to open, and I'm very excited about it. Were you blown away just even in terms of having that confidence? Just really what happened that opening night, and then obviously what happened in the years to come? I was uh, numb when that uh, uh, studio opened up that night. It was, uh, we weren't 100% ready. We weren't really geared up for security. Afraid people were going to break the door down. We were like, from the very second, it was like holding on to a light bulb. And uh, it was just to keep our head above water. We didn't really have time to think or react, which I think happens a lot when you uh, uh, start a new business. And I didn't really realize uh, that we had had, I didn't even know if it was good. I'd ask Steve, Steve, did they like it? Did they like it? It wasn't until the next morning I got a phone call from Steve about 6 a.m. He probably hadn't even been to sleep yet. And uh, we, we were on the front page of the New York Post with a picture of Cher uh, dancing. And uh, this was the very beginning about using um, media and the gossip columns and everything. And then I knew we, we, we had arrived because we were on the front page of the New York Post, uh, something unheard of and unprecedented. Uh, yeah, it's really amazing to think that as young guys, you and your partner, Steve Rubel, and opening this and share on, on the cover of the post at Studio 54, but you both were really kind of the first in terms of using celebrity power. Nowadays, it's it's everywhere. There's endorsements. There's You really had authentic endorsements, but did you understand at the time the power of celebrity and, and what that would do for Studio 54? We knew that uh, in a nightclub, you had to have uh, the best people in the city come to it. We, we knew that. So we were always after that great crowd, that in-the-know crowd. At that time in the city, it was very bohemian and very fashion-oriented. Those were our movie stars. Uh, the gay population was just beginning to emerge. So we were trying to get the most discriminating, the coolest, the most sophisticated people to come to the nightclub. The idea of the age of celebrity was just beginning then. Because before the age of celebrity, you had, I suppose, everybody had their own specific time. You had, um, at first, it was rich people. Everybody was fascinated with rich people who was being invited to Mrs. Astor's ball <laughs> every year. Uh, and then we went from rich people 
uh, we went to movie stars. And then from movie stars, we went to uh, ball players. Uh, and then from ball players, uh, we went to um, musicians and rock stars. And then from rock stars, we uh, kind of went to, uh, um, to media bigwigs and fashion designers. And everybody kind of had their place. And we went through all those things. The only difference is, and by the way, that was around the time People Magazine launched and Us Magazine launched. So it was just the beginning of the age of celebrity. But, but, but uh, what's different from today is that you first accomplished something that warranted you being a celebrity. So now we jump forward 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. years, and it's a complete parody because you become a celebrity before you've done anything unwarranted celebrity for celebrity's sake. So it's a parody. And then you look to cash in or do something justifiable to it. So it's like um, being completely turned on its head. So it's kind of different now. But um, we got to the point that if anybody came to New York City, they had to do two things. They had to be on the Tony Cost show and they had to come to Studio 54. And uh, we were just very fortunate with that well, it's amazing what you built and, and just even the legacy that carries on still to this day. And as you know, from being in the business, how many incredible, noteworthy nightclubs and ha- have had their time. But Studio 54 still to this day carries such incredible weight. And I want to ask you, because you did this with a partner who it's well documented, obviously, Steve Rubel. What was it about you two? that works so well in building businesses? First of all, we loved each other. We were really, really, really good friends. We had gone to school together. He was a few years older than I. I think uh, when I look back now, which is what you can do when you kind of connect the dots, uh, we kind of complete each other. And so together, I remember one person saying that uh, together uh, we would be... uh, a hurricane, but if we were apart, both of us would have been successful in our own right. And I just think that uh, we never had a a division of responsibility. We trusted and respected each other. Uh, There wasn't mutually exclusive areas of responsibility. We overlapped. We both uh, trusted each other's judgment. I wanted to know if something was good. I would ask Steve, Steve, is this good? And uh, that was like my one-man census, my one-man sample, because I trusted him. Uh, and he would ask me something. And um, so he felt the same way. And I just think, and we both worked very, very hard at it. We both took it very, very personal. It was a zero-sum game. Success well, no success. And we just worked very, very well together. You know, I remember when we had opened up a club in Queens uh, right before a studio. It was open for about six months. And uh, the first night that it was open, Steve went to the bar to hang out with the kids in Queens. And I went up to the DJ booth to play with the lights. And that kind of set the tone. We gravitated, as the way everybody else does, with what you like and feel comfortable doing. And it just worked very, very well for us. And the final thing was that happens in a lot of partnerships, happens in a lot of bands too. There was so much trust and love between us that if Steve was getting all of the attention and uh, Steve was taking all of the bows and getting all of the credit, 
it didn't trouble me because I felt I was getting it mm. through him vicariously. So if he got it, I got it. And uh, that kind of selflessness between us, because of our ultimate trust, we were on a mission together. It just uh, worked very well. I That's hard, because those are the kind of things that make it difficult for partners to continue sometimes when they have a success. But uh, we were 50-50 partners, and you don't share 50-50 with someone unless they're doing 50% of the work. Yeah. So, I think that's a great point. And just the ability for yourself to let him kind of be out there and be in the limelight, because there are so many co partnerships or founder, co founders that tears it apart when one's in the press, one's not. And the ability for you to be able to sit back and understand that was for me too. And I think that's such a great lesson for other entrepreneurs who are founders with different personalities and, and making sure you understand that and you can live with that. And um, I think that's a, su- such a valuable point. Steve passed away at a, a young age. Is there anything you've taken from him relationship? And we'll get into more of what you've done post, obviously, but anything that you've taken from him learned or try and live by day to day, whether it's personally or in business? I could never do what Steve did. I had to cover certain aspects of his job and I had to give certain aspects of my job to somebody else in the organization. So I knew what Steve did and I had to figure out a way intellectually and rationally to be able to accomplish that not to me because I didn't intrinsically enjoy that part of it. So I knew the elements of success and I had to kind of figure it out how to get those things uh, achieved without him. The most important thing, you know, for me is that when I'm doing a hotel now, nothing else matters but the product. Nothing. A little bit the way Steve Jobs felt, I suppose. Nothing else matters but the product. And uh, at that point in my life with Steve, nothing else matters but the success. If, if it's successful, the high tide comes in and we all benefit. We all get credit. If it's not, you can have all the credit. And I think that was nothing else mattered but the success. And now it's the product. And uh, that's a good thing to live by because... It frees you up from a lot of uh, petty distractions that somehow seem to always creep into the equation. Yeah, I want to talk about, I mean, Studio 54, incredible success. You hit on something just at the perfect time, day and age. We talked about celebrity and how that helped catapult everything you were doing. But then back in the 80s, You, I assume, and you can tell me, have this idea about boutique hotels. I was shocked looking that it was in the 80s because I look at boutique hotels kind of only most recently. But how did that idea and concept even come about? Well, it's all kind of funny. You know, as an entrepreneur, everything is fortuitous. We had sold Studio 54 and took a lot of promissory notes. And uh, when the guy we sold it to couldn't pay the promissory notes... We traded those promissory notes for his interest in a hotel because you know what? It's opportunistic. We felt that we could do a hotel because it's creating an experience. It was the same approach we had with studio. It's like creating this experience, sophisticated, based upon a sensibility, a certain attitude, new and young and and uh, and rejecting everything that had been done up before. So it's the same approach we had with the nightclub. 
but it was opportunistic. And, and to also have to say, you know, when you talk about hospitality, so what do you have? You have restaurants, bars, nightclubs, and hotels. And they're kind of all related. The goal is to take care of people. So it was a natural progression, but it was opportunistic. That's amazing. I never knew that. And when you look at Morgan's Hotel and, and when you started that and created that with Steve, was there ever a time at the beginning where you both were like, maybe we should just go back into the nightclub business? I didn't want to go into the nightclub business anymore. Uh, Steve did, uh, which is one of the reasons we did the, the Palladium. We had done everything uh, there. We had nothing left to show, nothing left to prove. It's a tough business. Uh, there are not many people that survive. It uses up, it spends most of the people in the, in the business because you don't have any discernible product or it is the magic. You have to create magic every single day. And so I wanted to go into the whole, whole hotel business or some other kind of business, but Steve had a natural enjoyment of it. To me, it was always a business. So going into the hotel business, going in and doing Morgan's, the first one, we opened up that hotel. We didn't even have a liquor license. We didn't have a chef. We didn't have food and beverage. What we had was the kind of panache and the style and the design of what we created. And it was our generation of hotel, not for my parents. It wasn't looking back, it was looking forward. And everything was new and original, stylish, sophisticated. It didn't feel like a hotel to people. It felt like a residence. And that, that was a it was a, just a natural hit. The way studio was just a natural hit. You know, when you hit the zeitgeist, bullseye you people know it Morgan's took right off i remember seeing andy warhol peeking into the window from the street wanting to see what was going on because the uh the tom tom drums uh the uh the people were talking about it already and he, he wanted to see what was happening about it. do you think and it's so great. I mean, iconic and thinking of Andy Warhol peeking into the Morgan's Hotel. And do you think it was because of you and Steve and seeing what you've created? Or do you think he also realized at the time, you know what? This is the future. This is the future of hospitality. What do you think was the reason? Probably both. But I, but I think you have to remember up to that time, the hotel business was a wasteland. Uh, there was nothing innovative going on. Uh, there was nothing original. Uh, everything was a remnant from prior years. Nothing had changed in 100 years. Everything was the same. Uh, the approach was the same. The only thing that distinguished hotels was a price or a location. They all looked the same. They all were the same. There was no focus on experience. It was all weight uh, and efficiencies of execution. So it was like wide open. Somebody came in. It was a little treacherous because it's a very capital intense business. Capital intense businesses don't really encourage new ideas because nobody wants to take a risk. But we we just thought that um, it was a small hotel, it was only 113 keys, 150 rooms, and uh, we thought that uh, there would be a market for something that was really special and uh, and uh, and really unique. We didn't know the first thing about the hotel business. We had to hire someone to manage it for the first six months until we could learn it. And then when we thought we could do it on our own, 
We let the management company go. We started running it. It was strictly like Spanky and our gang saying, let's do a show. And um, those are very, very gratifying, rewarding, you know, times that I'll, uh, I'll never forget. I, I remember well, we had a banker who was financing it. I think uh, we bought the hotel, I think, for um, $6 million. We put down $60,000 deposit, which is the last 60000 we had. So I remember pouring over everything, everything, every detail in the bank in the room there. And I remember talking about whether or not a table, normally a table in America is somewhere between uh, uh, 29 and 30 inches tall. And so I was talking about this because the room was small and we were scaling back the furniture. And so we were going to have this table, have a table height of 24, 25, 26 inches. And I remember talking about that with the designer and the uh after the designer left the bank account, you're never going to be able to do this business. You're going to get into that level of detail with what's going on. But you know what? He was wrong. Yep. But that level of detail, when it all comes together, is where the alchemy comes from, where the magic comes from, and where people respond to it. So that's still my, my approach today. God, redemption, and salvation. <laughs> the details. Yeah, it sounds like you even knew at that point, which the banker probably never understood, you were selling an experience, whether it was Studio 54 or Morgan's, it was an experience and it required that type of detail. Because there's no map to tell you how to do it. You don't know what detail is the detail that puts something over the top or resonates with people. So therefore, every detail is a matter of life and death. And that's still the way I do it. And I think that's the way every creative person does it, whether in the movies or in theater or in music or, or whatever. You're not quite sure. You just have to make it as perfect as you can, as you can possibly make it and hope that it touches people emotionally. More from our guests, but first, a word from our sponsors. An entrepreneur doesn't work regular hours. When starting a company, one must be prepared to be working day and night. Sometimes 24 hours is not even enough time to accomplish the task you'd like done. But what if you could get some of that time back? With Belay, you can. Belay is the organization revolutionizing productivity with its virtual assistant, bookkeeping and social media strategist services for growing organizations. Belay can help you reclaim 15 hours every week by delegating just five tasks. Think of five tasks you could delegate today. Maybe emails, scheduling, booking travel, planning meetings, expense reporting. You can get a free download of their CEO's latest book on how to delegate like a pro. Rise up and lead well. How leveraging an assistant will change your life and maximize your time. Just go to belaysolutions.com slash HSH. That's B-E-L-A-Y solutions.com slash HSH to get it. And our next sponsor. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? 
To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. And we're back. Did you have to fine tune a lot of things? Because in uh, being an entrepreneur in all businesses, there's so much failure. And it sounds like studio from the beginning. I mean, I'm sure it changed, but was certainly a success. But within the hotel business, were there things on weekly, monthly basis is that you were saying, okay, we have to change this. We have to create this just to get the product better. We would never open like in the entertainment business until the product was ready. We, would, we wouldn't open. It's a show. It's a, we have a narrative. If it, you can't open up when it's not done. You can't open up when only two of the three or four acts are done. It has to be completely ready. So while things may get refined and evolve, we never made a change. What we opened with is what we stayed with. And uh, because when it opened and it would become, and it was successful, then you're afraid to make a change because it's successful. So well, we never, uh, we never made a change on anything ever that we opened. We yeah. wouldn't open if we weren't ready. I want to talk about your recent, you've been in this business now, long time, really created this business of the boutique hotel. They're all over every city you go to every uh, around the world. I mean, that, is that a pretty incredible feeling to see that and know that you kind of were the originator? Thank you. But uh, I, what's happening now is what happened before in the hotel industry. The people in the hotel industry are like a bunch of elephants in a circus ring, grabbing, grabbing the tail of the elephant in front of them and parading around the ring. In order for you to do a really great lifestyle hotel, it's not about design. That I don't think people really understood. Design was one of the elements of it, but it has to have a vision to it. And there aren't many people out there that have an original vision. They're just replicating what they see in a different color. I think that's, uh, that's a bad thing because uh, then the people don't get the choice and don't get to see alternate products because all they're seeing is in America, it's uh, you do something successful, you can generally hope to be first at it, then everybody jumps in and tries to uh, replicate it. But if you don't have an original vision, mm. if you don't make it yours in some way, if you don't contribute to it in some way, it's just a knockoff. And I think that people know the difference. Yeah, I think they definitely do in terms of authenticity, especially today's consumer. And I want you to talk about public and your philosophy and and what you're doing now within the hospitality industry. Public is my most important idea ever. I uh, you know and why because it is uh, providing sophisticated designs and finishes, elevated entertainment experiences the best food and beverage and bars that you can possibly have and providing a new definition of luxury service. Not the definition of luxury service that you're used to getting at a luxury hotel, which to me is irrelevant and meaningless, but the kind of luxury service now that matters, that makes you stay more comfortable, humanizes it, personalizes it, and making it available to people at an accessible price point, where usually those people only get access to dumbed-down products. So I think the idea of providing something really great and making it accessible to everybody and anybody who wants it is just a really democratizing of luxury. I just think it's a new and a very, very important idea 
especially in this age where everything is so polarized and there's a, a resentment from uh, rich people by the other people. I just think they're trying to break down all those barriers. And it's just a, it's just a bottom humanistic thing to do to provide good stuff to everybody that wants it, not only rich people. Yeah. So I'm very excited about it. It's interesting coming from, you know, when you think back to Studio 54 and picking to get people in and and now it's like you're creating this and you said your most important project, you're creating this experience, but it's for everyone and it's luxury for all. Can you talk about that? Yes. You know, the idea of luxury hasn't changed for hundreds of years. You know, we got it from Europe. And it made its way, way over here. We don't care about people being brass buttons and gold epaulets and white gloves and mm-hmm. yes, sirring and no sirring, you to death and obsequious things. Uh, we don't care about certain other things, about uh, uh, the bellman carrying your luggage uh, when today, because of what they did with the airport, all luggage is on wheels and people were used to carrying it uh, themselves. Or, or having an automatic check-in uh, where you can get up to your room uh, almost instantly, like the way you get into your office or the way you get into your residences. We hear in this country there's a reluctance to try new things, mm. and the pandemic actually opened up a lot of avenues that uh, people were a little bit resistant to before. But our whole point of luxury for all means, we feel there are very... There are lots and lots and lots of opportunities to provide personal, attentive, empathetic, sympathetic services to make your stay more comfortable and use technology so you don't get bogged down with making requests and all. And so that you have a lot of free time now to spend it in something that makes you happy and you comfortable. And I just think... You know, that that's just so important. So if you're coming to public and you're expecting all of those antiquated, outdated, telltale things of luxury, like you're in a room service and you get delivered to your room, you have a cup of coffee, an orange juice and a croissant, you have to wait 45 minutes for it and maybe you pay $35 for it. No, no. We have something downstairs. You want that? Go down and pick it up and get it in five minutes. And it's like eight dollars. So it's just uh, and you know what? It saves you time. And then you can do other things you feel. are That to me is luxury. It's not a business classification. It's not based on money. It's based upon giving you the freedom of time to pursue things you feel are more important. I want to tell you something about Studio 54, by the way. When we opened up Studio, yes. We were picking people to come in, but it wasn't elitist. We were picking people to come in because we wanted to have a that same freedom we want to give you with the hotel now. We wanted you to have that freedom at the nightclub. We wanted women to be able to be in there and not get bothered and hit up on by gods. Uh, we wanted celebrities to come in there and not be bothered by other people. Uh, We wanted a diversity of people, gay, straight, black, white, because it's that diversity that creates this combustible energy rather than being in a room merely with rich people. It's like if you have a dinner over your home uh, and uh, you invite people to come to it, you know, you make a selection. It's not based on money, but you might sit somebody talkative 
next to somebody not so talkative to make for a good evening. That's what we were trying to do. Uh, the only difference is, is when you do it over your private home, it's cool. When you do it in the public domain, it's not cool. Yeah. People get aggravated about it. But it wasn't based upon elitism. It was based upon, hey, we want to make sure we have a good night in there. And we want to make sure there's a balance so that you could be sitting next to a celebrity and the celebrity didn't care. And the person who was sitting next to somebody didn't care. They were just there having a good time. And you might see a, a gay guy with tight jeans and no shirt dancing with a woman in a ball gown and a, a diamond tiara having a great time and they didn't care. And so that's what we were trying to uh, achieve, that experience. And, uh, but, uh, you know, selections at doors is, uh, is a kind of very spontaneous thing it's, uh, subject to a lot of uh, mistakes and errors and people get aggravated. You know, the only one I ever saw be able to pull that off right was Steve because he was such a people person and was so kind. I've seen Steve split up married couples. <laughs> you can come in, but your husband can't. But he was able to get away with it because he was genuinely nice about it. Not yeah. condescending or dismissive or mean about it. So, but, you know, you, know, you find there is a... When you look back, that's only when you could connect the dots. You can see that's a continuum from studio right up, right up to today. We're still after that freedom. People to be free of hassles and free of transactions that take up your time and you get aggravated with and frustrated with. Ease, making everything easy and comfortable and convenient. That to me is luxury. That's the other stuff. And uh, it takes time to educate uh, people about that. Somebody told me in, in China, uh, they didn't have to unlearn any ideas. They're all on PayPal and stuff mm. like their phones. They, they don't have credit cards. Here, I think it's maybe 10% because people have to be open and receptive to new things. And it's not the easiest thing in the world to change. But we believe in this idea of public and we think it's very important and we think it's going to have a bigger impact on the industry than the lifestyle hotel did. Because even though the lifestyle is a segment, it's affected everybody. Everybody's into creating experiences right now, from the biggest companies uh, to the smallest. And I think that's a great thing. I think the, the public benefit from something like that. Yeah. I mean, we're living in an experience economy, right? It's the reason you go to Starbucks and pay whatever amount you're paying. It's for the experience. And you understood that the experience you gave first off at Studio 54 and, you know, now with public, you've always understood that. But what I didn't realize until you said it was, and I'm, I'm wondering if this might be one of the proudest things you feel from your career is we've only really recently been talking about inclusivity and with everything going on. And you look back at Studio 54 and this was really the first time you had all these different types of cultures in a room. And do you look back at that time and be like, wow, we, we were ahead of the game here. Definitely we do. I, I definitely do. People don't understand that it's diversity, the diversity of a city, including in that, uh, that is what creates the energy, not everybody the same. And uh, it's uh and something I just recently found out. I recently watched a documentary on the Velvet Underground. And 
The Velvet Underground was a band that was managed by Andy Warhol for a period of time. And uh, they used to have a club called The Dom, D-O-M. It was on uh, West 8th, West 7th, St. Mark's Place. And in it, the, the Velvet Underground would perform. And uh, Andy uh, would be up in the balcony and he would be playing films on the Velvet Underground as they performed. And he would be taking blinking lights, moving them up and down on the Velvet Underground as they performed. Which maybe that gave up, gave way to all those kind of screens and things that happened during the 60s. And in that place, the Dom, it was frequented because Andy sold art to people on the Upper West Side, Leonard Burns, Jacqueline Kennedy, and a lot of other big shots. Plus, hobos from the Bowers. They were all in this room together. So it just struck me that Andy was really a part of that whole realization as a visionary too. Because I guess the wealthy rich people that were there felt that they were kind of slumming with um, some Bowery gave them a sense of excitement. I don't know, but it shows you what a, what a really visionary Andy really, really was. Yeah. And, um, I didn't even know this, by the way. I just, uh, I learned it when I was watching the Velvet Underground documentary. So interesting. And, you know, in the time we have left, I do want to ask you, we just went through, I know in my lifetime, probably the most difficult time and mind-changing time. And I'm very curious as to how you see the long-term impacts of, of COVID playing out in the future of experiential and hospitality and just people in general. Nobody knows. No expert knows anything more than you and I do because it's unprecedented. I'm not a big believer in paradigm shifts. Uh, you know, I think things yeah. on a continuum, they continue to evolve and change, but I don't believe in, boom, things will change. I think uh, we will get back to normal, not a new normal, the same normal, but I'm not sure when, right? But uh, we're a species. I remember Steve asking me when we were opening up the Palladium in 1985, do you think people still want to dance? <laughs> <laughs> And I remember when we opened up public a few years ago, I was told, well, people only dance with William Burke. They're not going to dance in Manhattan. And I would say, well, where is that written? Who said that? You know, because I think we're a species. We have certain needs and wants and desires, a certain DNA. We require socialization. I don't think things change so quickly. We take a shot. We have to rebound from it. It has a temporary influence, but I don't, uh, I don't see any paradigm shift. I see it's getting back to the way we were before, but I'm just not quite sure when. I don't have any data on this. It's just my instinct and my experience of seeing things before. You know, we went to, uh, we almost went to a financial meltdown in 2000, uh, 2009. I think it was 2009. Yeah, 2008, Warren 2009. Buffett. And then Warren Buffett saying all these weapons of mass destruction and all these abuses. Well, we're right back to doing it again. We're right back to doing it again. That's the way people are. So I'm quite confident that things will return to normal. A little setback here, a little setback there. But, uh, you know, I, I think it will. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that it's human nature. And I think the opposite where there was so much isolation and that's so difficult for most humans not to have that, that coming out of this, people say the roaring twenties or, you know, I'm very interested if you think now, you know, in terms of nightlife and clubs, this might be the perfect time to create something because people are in need of this. Yeah, I, I, I do. In the hotel business, well, first of all, the hotels are doing gangbusters. The bars and the restaurants and everything are doing great. But in New York, normally January and February are not the best business. And it, then it ramps up. But I think we're going to be very busy in January and February because I think a lot of these people finally out there socializing is going to continue. I can't say for how long. I do think it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's going to continue. Well, I, you listen to the experts who don't know anything. You listen to everybody on news. They don't know anything. They don't know anything more than we do. It's so true. Because it's unprecedented. And uh, I'm 75 years old. Uh, and I've been to a lot. And I don't remember ever seeing a paradigm shift in all the ups and downs that I've seen in, in my lifetime. So based upon that, I think... We're not having a different hotel business. We're not having restaurants being different. Everything's going to get back to the way it was. Yeah, which I think is the beauty in a lot of times of human nature and how we survive because you, you can't be doing that. And the last question I wanted to ask you, you know, in terms of yourself, you just mentioned 75. You have been ultra successful in the hospitality industry in so many different ways. I really get the feeling like you love this stuff. And where do you see yourself, you know, with public and maybe other ventures over the next few years? Oh, I love what I do. I, I don't live to work. I, I work to live. I love it. Thank, I thank God I made money, but it's, the money can't be the motivating factor. I actually love what I do. It express myself. I I get challenged and interested and provoked. So I, I'm just as hungry and as aggressive and wanting to shake things up as much as I ever did. And I think I'm so lucky for that because uh, that kind of drive and that kind of curiosity really makes age irrelevant. It's the heart. I'm just as enthusiastic as I ever was. You know, so I'm trying to teach my, my kids that. Gotta love what you do. If you do, it's not work. So true. I, I can't, you know, myself as an entrepreneur and being in business and I went into sports uh, initially and then entertainment and built businesses in those areas. And only because I love it now creating a company, Amaze Media Labs, we create podcasts and only because I love it. And for me, yeah. it's you got to do something in this country. You're given that opportunity. And, you know, for most, you know, and it's just it's so great to hear you say like, because I do agree with you, the curiosity and, and, and when you have that in the interest, age doesn't matter. It yeah. never matters. <laughs> you know, get old when you stop being curious. Totally. You stop being enthusiastic where you don't have a kind of a passion to something, a passion to do something. I'll do what you previously did. That's what keeps me going. Well, Ian, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking to you on How Success Happens and wishing you the best of luck with public and really enjoyed just how much you enjoy what you're doing. It's, it's such a blessing and it's, 
It's really just such a reminder to all the listeners who are thinking about starting businesses, working in business, especially today after what we've all gone through. It's really refreshing. So thanks so much. Very kind of you. Thank you for having me. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman. that's R-O-B-E-R-T, T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business, or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.